This is the Mother Jones Podcast. I'm Jamila King in Brooklyn. On today's show... Last week, a jury declared Derek Chauvin guilty of murdering George Floyd. On our recent breaking news episode, you heard about what comes next in the fight for racial justice. And there's another moment of racial reckoning happening right under our noses. Black farmers were basically erased from the American landscape over the course of the 20th century. There were nearly a million Black farmers in 1910. That number dropped to less than 20,000 in 1980. That's reshaped how intergenerational wealth works in the United States. But recently, there's been a movement to go back. A new generation of Black farmers is returning to the soil and reclaiming their legacy. And today, we're going to get into that movement. The people who are leading it, how they're doing it, and why. You got some onions going? Some garlic. This, um, that's garlic, huh? Garlic, Garlic's uh, looking good. Yeah, yeah, I need to get some, I have to get some uh, mulch on it. Yeah. Um, Tom Philpot, our food and agriculture correspondent, wrote the cover story for the latest issue of Mother Jones magazine called Black Land Matters. Some strawberries next to it. We're kind of experimenting with strawberries. Hey, Tom, congrats on the piece. Thank you, Jamila. Tom, tell me who we're listening to and where we are. And so I'm probably going to move. We did tomatoes, um, cherries, and... We're listening to Taz Walker. Hello, how you doing? Who runs Terra Negra Farm. Um, so Terra Negra Farm has been around for 10 years. A small farm in the outskirts of Durham, North Carolina. And it's on this land collective called the Earthseed Land Collective. And we're sitting out under a veranda. Taz has this calm, still presence. And Taz is an interesting figure in this movement that's happening among younger African-American people to get back on the land and start farming again. And so in those circles, you hear a lot of, of buzz about Tierra Negra Farm and Earthseed because it's an interesting um, sort of collective model. We've always met, done a kind of a CSA um, type kind of a farm production. Terra Negra Farm sells produce through a, a community-supported agriculture program. Those are known as CSAs, where people buy a share in the farm's output before the season starts, and they get a weekly vegetable box all summer and fall. And we're bringing our dollars together to buy um, land so that we can, you know, have a base for different businesses, different kind of more social programs that we want to um, to, to to run. And there's quite a story behind the land he farms on. So what's the story behind this farm? The land that he's on was one of the biggest and most notorious slave plantations in all of the South. It was called Stagville. That's a plantation, one of the largest plantations in North Carolina at the time. It's like right down the road, mm. like a mile and a half. Taz described how powerful it is to be growing food for actual descendants of people who were enslaved on that land. One of the, our, the, the folks in our CSA, it's called the Farm Share. One of the Farm Share members is a descendant of Stagville. Stagville was massive. I mean, yeah. it was like, it extended a lot of the descendants of Stagville are still around here. When you say descendants, do you mean of the the sort of owner white owner family or the of no the, of the of the the of the, uh, the enslaved people that okay. were there? So there's like. 
At its peak, this Stagville plantation had 900 enslaved people on it growing tobacco, cotton, and these other big commodity crops, you know, obviously to the benefit of Stagville's owners. And if you dig into the history, you can see that there were rebellions, um, you know, mi miniature rebellions that were brutally put down. It was obviously a place of kind of terror for people living there. Um, Taz himself isn't from the area, but his father grew up as the son of farmers and he had family who was farming when he was young and he was involved in farming a little bit uh, as sharecroppers. I mean, they left sharecropping in the, their late teens to move to like, you know, work in you know, different factories across the Midwest. Taz told me that listening to family stories, hearing his dad talk about his childhood, he never heard about this farming legacy and he doesn't really have a great idea of what they grew. But I think it was a lot of, you know, um, I mean, I'm sure they had their own plots. I'm sure they, you know, they, they, they probably do some cotton out there. And they, you know, the, the thing that he really takes away from it is that they never could get their own land. They're always farming someone else's land on their terms, trading in the, um, the sort of harvest for rent. And it was just a really bad situation. Yeah, they just, they weren't able to own any land. Yeah. And so it's not something that, you know, it's, you know, it's funny. It's like, well, what what was their story? And it's just like a lot of folks may not, if, you know, two generations later, you may not know because the generation in between does not want to talk about it because it was like the trauma of it um, gets passed down. And it's like the farm is not something that you're like, oh, we've. You know, I remember on the farm, I mean, you you know. It so his family never talked about the experience. And the main reason was that it was this trauma that he didn't want to pass down to his children. Wow. I mean, intergenerational trauma is real. How did Taz begin to learn about his family history with that trauma? Well, he says his dad really opened up about it um, when Taz was an adult uh, and working as a farmer um, not that long ago. And... Taz and his friends um, engaged in a very traditional activity called a hog killing. And a hog killing is very traditional in African-American uh, farming communities throughout the South. And it's where a community will come together with uh, a hog or two hogs or three hogs. And there's this whole ritual of, you know, you jack the, the hog up on, a, on some kind of a rope and you, you know, scald the hog, you, uh, you skin it, cut it up, and there's, you know, blood and guts everywhere. And, you know, the whole idea is to sort of harvest this pig and preserve its meat for the rest of the season. And so he, he invites his, uh, his father to this thing. And his father is like, I've done that. He was just like, oh, I grew up doing this because my dad would spend his summers in Kentucky and, you know, because they were in western Kentucky towards the Mississippi and Hickman. Um, and they was like, yeah, we did this in the summers. We did Hawkins. I was like, I never knew that. Like, I had no idea like wow. that you did this um, because they just didn't share the stories. And it was like, you know, my dad would always say, everybody's trying to get off the farm. Why are you trying to get on the farm? Right. How representative is Taz? I mean, could we start to call this a movement or is Taz just one farmer who's doing it? I think it's definitely accurate to say that he's representative of something larger. And it's something that I've observed over the past 10 or 15 years. Um, I remember when I first started writing about this and actually when I first got involved with it, it was in the community garden movement in New York. And at that time, there was this budding sense in neighborhoods like Crown Heights and East New York. There were these community gardens that were under attack from the city. 
And most of the people gardening there were from the Caribbean or from the American South and preserving these traditions. And that galvanized a movement, I think, that has done a large part to uh, inform the movement of young African-Americans to get back to the land. And Taz is kind of a a folk hero in in that movement. But I think there, you know, it definitely, there is this energy among young people to to get back into farming. And one of the real sort of avatars of the movement and drivers of it is a woman who uh, farms in upstate New York outside of Albany named Leah Penniman. My favorite topic is talking about um, African agrarianism and that legacy. She's got a farm called Soulfire Farm. And we did an episode on her on this podcast, Sister Pod, Bite Podcast, last year. And she gave an overview of how Black people were pushed off the land throughout the course of the 20th century. I've definitely heard of Leah Penniman. She's a big deal, a big name in this movement. Tell me about what she told Bite. What really stood out to you the most? Well, you know, she's got this you know, sweeping critique that begins with the sort of white European settlement of the continent. One of the original sins of this country really is the land theft from indigenous people um, and the attempted genocide and attempting to wipe indigenous folks off the map. But, you know, the colonizers realized that land was power. And so throughout history, folks of color have been excluded in various ways from land ownership. You know, right after the Civil War, there was the promise of 40 acres and a mule uh, that came out of a plea from a group of black clergy who met with General Sherman of the Union Army and said, and I quote, you know, what we need are our own homes and the ground beneath them so we can plant fruit trees and say to our children, these are yours. And that was immediately reversed with the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Andrew Johnson uh, was a white supremacist, and he he crushed that rule and much else in Reconstruction. And what Black folks had to do was to stay on plantations as sharecroppers. Which is an extraordinarily exploitative relationship. And, you know, basically siphoning wealth and knowledge out of the labor of, uh, of Black people amid all of this, Black people were able to save and scrap and get hold of a significant amount of farmland in the United States. These meager parcels, usually two and a half acres, five acres. And Black land ownership peaks in 1910. And by 1910, astonishingly, had uh, become 14% of the nation's farmers and owned around 16 million acres of land. There was a swift and severe backlash to Black independent farming. The rise of the White Caps, the Ku Klux Klan, and later the White Citizens Council corresponded with, as they would say, you know, these uppity Black folks trying to make it on their own and and not staying in their right place in the social strata. Um, And so they literally murdered people. I mean, they burned down their homes, they threatened them, they shot at them, um, and then stole the land. And so that was the first major um, impetus for black land loss. And then the federal government was certainly no help because they, uh, while they're obligated to provide farmers with uh, loans and crop insurance and technical assistance and all these programs through the USDA, they would deny those systematically to black farmers leading to foreclosures. And uh, there was a US Commission of Civil Rights report in the 1960s that said that the federal government at that time was the number one cause of the decline of the black farmer and they predicted the extinction of the black farmer. 
And that led to a massive dispossession. This is extremely well documented. There was a amazing 1960s civil rights report from the federal government that found out that the USDA was the main reason why black people were losing their land and having to leave the South. Wow, that's quite a bit of history. So despite some progress, the situation described in that piece remains pretty dismal. Tom, tell me a bit about how things stand right now. Things stand in a fairly dismal place. So right now, way less than 2% of, uh, of farmers are, are Black. Um, black land ownership is a tiny fraction of what it was in 1910. Uh, the USDA has lost a couple of major lawsuits and had to pay some money out. But the general trend of discrimination, of withholding loans, withholding support to African-American farmers essentially lives on to this day. And Leah, in our conversation, she talked about what this has resulted in over time. We went from 14% of the nation's farmers to less than 2% today, with a corresponding loss of around 12 million acres of land. Uh, So I was just looking at the 2017 USDA census. And, you know, depending how you count white, Latinx and Hispanic folks, whether you count them or not, um, we're looking at about 98% of farmland ownership being in white hands, you know, today. And that's more racially skewed than it's ever been before. If, if land truly is the basis of our liberation, of our power, our autonomy, our dignity, um, I think it says a lot about this nation, the fact that all the arable land is concentrated into the hands of one demographic group. Coming up after the break, the economics of land loss and the trillion dollar consequences. Stick around. You can read Tom's big feature online at motherjones.com. And if you want to support the show, it's really easy to do. Just hit that follow button on whatever platform you're listening to this show right now. It'll help us out a lot. The Mother Jones stories you're hearing right now are brought to you by our listeners and loyal readers who fuel our work. Audience support makes up two-thirds of the Mother Jones budget and helps our team dig deep on stories that matter. Make a donation at motherjones.com slash give to keep our nonprofit newsroom humming. Again, that's motherjones.com slash G-I-V-E. Welcome back to the show. Farmers are deeply connected to the land that they're tending, but the loss of farmland represents so much more than just the loss of a patch of earth. It's people's livelihoods. It's the foundation of wealth that builds up over generations. So, Tom, you also spoke to an economist who gave you some fresh numbers on this front. Who was that? Yeah, I talked to a wonderful economist named Dania Francis. She's at the University of Massachusetts at Boston, and her main research focus is the black-white wealth gap. Black households have a median wealth of about 17000 compared to white households, which have a median wealth of somewhere near 171000 So, So almost tenfold. One of the things that she emphasizes is that when white folks got all of that farmland, because, you know, essentially when when Black people would lose farmland, white people would get it. 
And when the white people got all that land, they also got wealth and opportunity from those black farmers and their families. So one thing to think about is, you know, when we think about agricultural land, there's multiple points of value, right? There's there's use value, right? The actual production value, um, which can be income generating. There is um, asset value, right? Land itself is is an asset. And then there's also the... Um, the value it creates in an opportunity in being, for example, collateral and the ability then to um, use that to finance education, right? Finance the, the investment in other businesses or other ventures. So those, you know, three types of uses of, of agricultural land uh, create value that is different than, you know, for example, housing, right? Which, which then doesn't have, you know, income generating um, properties as well. Right. And so my understanding from um, W.E.B. Du Bois's work and, and other work is that in 1910, you know, basically the black middle class was middle class because of farmland ownership. Is that basically correct? That's right. 1910 is really the peak after which we see this um, steady decline. And so I'm wondering um, what we know about how much that decline contributes to this current wealth gap that we have now. I've been working on investigating that exact question with a, a team of researchers. And one of the things that we've done is look at census of agriculture data to say, you know, how much, how much land was there, right? How much was lost um, over time? And what was the value of that land? And then not only do we calculate the, the value of that land, you know, contemporaneously, but then we also say over time, you know, how much would that land loss have accumulated um, if we, you know, compound interest at, you know, around 5% or something like that. And our conservative estimate is somewhere around the, the line of around $300 billion in, in 2018 dollars of the land loss that occurred from 1910 to about 1970. Which is huge, right? $300, $300 billion is nothing to, to, to sneeze at. And going back to farmland, what do you think the fair remedy is? I mean, because, you know, it's very well documented that this giant dispossession of land didn't happen because people decided to move from the country to the city because they had better opportunities or whatever. It was policy. Um, and so what, what policies do you uh, foresee that could address this problem? have a wealth transfer of right, of uh, a significant portion, right? And and in that regard, I'm talking about um, a, a reparations program um, that, that a direct way to address a wealth gap is to um, provide Black families with um, with wealth, right? Um, so, so, so that's, you know, one way. There's also land reform um, as, as, a, as a vehicle. I would be an, a, more of an advocate for a direct reparations program, a cash reparations program that would allow um, recipients the freedom to do with it as they uh, deem best, as opposed to saying, you know, earmarking it for specific use. Um, but but I think certainly that the best uh, and most practical solution to a wealth gap would be to close the wealth gap directly. So what's next? How can this be solved? Dunia Francis mentioned land reform. Is anyone trying to do that? Yes. Um, and I, what I think is quite stunning that 
in America, in the land of sort of, you know, free markets, there is an actual bill in Congress that would do land reform. And it's called the Justice for Black Farmers Act. Cory Booker introduced it right after the election in November, and he's going to reintroduce it soon, is what I understand. And what it would do is it would spend $8 billion a year for the next 10 years, buying land on the open market and giving it to new and existing black farmers. This is a you know, pretty revolutionary idea in the American context, but it's also exactly how, well, it's a modification of how our country was settled in the first place. And they refer to the various um, you know, land giveaways in the 19th century that people of color were excluded from and it's places like the Midwest. This is like that in that it would, um, the, the acres would be 160 acres, just like they were in the 19th century. But it's um, instead of, you know, taking land by force and giving it to white people, it's buying land on the open market and giving it to black people. Now, this has sparked some debate. There was a bit of an uproar. The bill itself doesn't mention uh, Native Americans. It doesn't mention it doesn't mention that incredible land grab that our country has been founded on. And I think that the, the bill's sponsors are figuring out what to do about that and how to make it more inclusive. And even in post-Trump Washington and this progressive turn that we're seeing in Washington, the chances of passing this thing are pretty nil. It's hard to imagine it getting past the, um, the filibuster, for example. But farmers like Leah Penniman and Taz Walker, they're not waiting on Washington. And, you know, one thing that, you know, Leah's farm produces food for low-income residents in Albany, um, but it also produces education. She and her team, they train young people of color in the techniques of sustainable farming, many of them drawn from what she calls, as I said before, African agrarianism. And uh, here's Leah. I've, I've been really blessed to be able to go and study farming with uh, peasant farmers in Haiti and Ghana and elsewhere in the diaspora. And one of the lessons that I learned from the queen mothers who are the elder custodians of culture in Land in Ghana, you know, they're just so incredulous that we in the United States would plant a seed in the ground and we wouldn't pray or sing or pour libation or even say thank you to the earth and then expect that seed to come up and nourish us. And they believe that that's why we are sick as a society, you know, because we treat the earth as a commodity and not a relative. Um, so I think we certainly can talk about all the various farming technologies that are rooted in African heritage. And that's very, very important. And for me, the, the most salient one is this sense of kinship uh, with the earth. Tom, you just walked us through so much research that people have done, knowledge and surface, even new policies. How is this kind of knowledge being put into practice and are newer farmers getting access to land? Well, that is a really tough challenge. And I think it really is the key challenge going forward. Um, you know, one of the kind of uh, heartbreaking things about this is that as African-American farmers and families were losing land, you know, starting in 1954, over that same period, land prices, farmland prices have skyrocketed. So it's like this missed wealth opportunity. And um, and that also means that it's really hard to get back on land. You're talking in oftentimes thousands of dollars per acre. 
What Taz did was he got together with a group of like-minded friends, pulled resources and bought land. And they also did a lot of creative stuff like getting involved with land trusts um, to get some of the land uh, at a better price because the develop it's not going to be developed ever. It's like sort of selling the development rights. The mission is really, um, you know, it's for, um, you know, communities of color, um, you know, people of color to reimagine um, their relationship to land um, and looking at more kind of modeling kind of more strategies for kind of collective resilience. It's a story of sort of reclaiming that legacy that um, that really sort of made me so interested in it against all of this awful history, taking it into a new direction. And, you know, I think that um, we're going to need innovative young people who are really smart and really um, just creative to come back to farmland in this country because it's consolidating into these giant mega farms that are super high tech, that rely on chemicals. And I think this, this movement is promising, not just for rebuilding African-American wealth and sort of pushing back on this awful black-white wealth gap, but it's also very promising for the future of American agriculture that we have this set of young people coming back who want to be on farms. Tom, thank you so much for all your work on this and thanks for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jamila. Tom Philpot is Mother Jones's food and agriculture correspondent. I'm Laura Thompson, and I'm a senior fellow in the San Francisco office. Right now, I'm working on a story about the frustratingly fleeting nature of police reform. Here are the credits for today's show. Theme music for the Mother Jones podcast was composed by Micah Barrick at Hear Film. This episode was reported by Tom Philpott. It was produced by Mother Jones senior editor Maddie Oatman, associate producer Molly Schwartz, and executive producer James West. James West did the mixing and mastering with additional production help from our managing producer, Mark Helenowski and Jamila King. And credit where credit is due. Mother Jones is supported by you, our listeners and readers. So thanks. That's it for this week's show. To read more on Tom Philpott's really incredible reporting on Black farmers, just head on over to motherjones.com and read the whole thing there. I'm your host, Jamila King. Again, if you want to support the podcast, it's easy to do and it's free. Just hit the follow button on whatever platform you're listening to now. I'll see you next week. This podcast is brought to you by Mother Jones listeners like you who donate to keep our newsroom buzzing. Help us stay on the beat. Go to motherjones.com slash give.